Well, we're back in the book of Acts, slowly making our way through the history of how those first people who had encountered Jesus lived their lives, of how their lives were changed dramatically, shaped by who Jesus is, what he had done, and the Holy Spirit who had come to live in them and amongst them and around them. And today's story is remarkable, to say the least. It's the story of a miracle, the sort of miracle that most of us certainly wouldn't expect day to day. Um, Many of us would be sceptical of if we encountered. But I don't think the miracle that takes place is the most remarkable thing in this story. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 down to verse 12, and see if you agree that there's something far more remarkable going on in this than the miracle that we're told about. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs where we were assembled, And a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him and said, don't be alarmed because he is alive. And after going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. Then he left. And they brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. It's an amazing story, a remarkable story of someone who was quite literally bored to death by preaching, none taken, but who is brought back to life. You'd imagine, wouldn't you, that if something like this had happened, that if you had this sort of story, that, 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 that the news of it would spread far and wide, that this would be the pinnacle of their meeting together. But the thing that I think that is most remarkable about this inclusion from Luke is that more isn't made of the miracle. We don't hear about the effect that this has more broadly on the community around them. Paul doesn't spend... Um, these hours that he's with them, explaining how this was possible. Um, He doesn't brag about it in any of the letters that we have from him. None of these things. The most remarkable thing in this story is that there isn't more made out of the miracle. There's a sense in which folks being raised from the dead in this fashion isn't actually that remarkable in the scriptures with those who have um, memories of the stories of Elijah and Elisha during the reign of the kings in Israel, they experienced something very similar. They were called into situations where sons had died, where they were laid to rest in upper rooms and they went and they lay and they embraced and life returned to those people. Or we know from the gospel stories where Jesus went. The little girl, Jairus's daughter, the widow um, having her son carried out, just in Luke's gospel alone. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, in the tomb, dead and buried, brought back to life. 
Even in the book of Acts, this isn't the first bringing back to life, is it? We had Peter earlier. He'd been there with Tabitha, who had died and went in, and there was life once more. So in one sense, it's not a remarkable story. It's not out there. It's not, you know, um, a curiosity amongst the many other miracles. But surely it should still strike us that this isn't even the, the big thing, the big point that's being made. It mentions there that the believers were gathered to break bread. The breaking of the bread is mentioned twice as much as this miracle. So I want us to see this morning, and we'll consider the miracle, but I want us to see this morning something of the expectations in early believers. Something of the desires, something of the things that they prioritised when it came to spending their time. We can learn a lot from how they organised their lives, how they saw certain things as being important or expected in their lives, which for many of us in the 21st century would be right down there, the bottom of our list of priorities. This is not a prescriptive text. We're not to comb through the finer details and say, well, because they did this, we have to in the same way. We're not going to say that we have to meet together on the third floor, that we can only meet when there are lamps around or, or, or silly things like that. But these folks who were so close to Jesus, who were being taught by those who had seen and walked and taught with Jesus, these folks who were so used to the power of the Holy Spirit being manifested amongst them, we do well to keep on learning from their lives and how they decided to organise themselves, to, to, to prioritise themselves and to have expectations. The first expectation I want to share with you this morning from this passage is this, is that they expected to meet together regularly. They had this habit of seeking out, of putting themselves in an environment of the truth of the gospel. It says here, the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. We see it in so many other places as well, that there was this habit, this desire, this expectation that believers at least once a week would come together come together in an environment of the gospel, in an environment of the truth. And that wasn't an easy decision to make. That wasn't an easy priority to have. You could have sketch around this story. It says that Paul was speaking until midnight. Well, he hadn't started at 10.30 like we do on a Sunday. You see, their Sundays were still a working day, though it was their day of celebrating, meeting together, gathering, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, it was still a working day. These folks had been out hard at work and they prioritised, they expected in the evening to come together into this environment of Jesus, his gospel, his truth. You know, for many of us, our days off, Sundays for most, can sometimes feel like there's a little bit of an intrusion and in the intrusion of 
church, the intrusion of coming before God and his word, the intrusion of being in the company of other believers so that as we were discussing last week, we can be encouraged and we can encourage them, sharpened, challenged, prodded and provoked. In our culture where Sundays are set aside, it can feel like a bit of an intrusion, let alone on a day where we may be working where we have other priorities, other responsibilities that we cannot set aside. But here are folks who continued this simple habit. They had this simple expectation that they wouldn't allow vast amounts of time to pass before coming together once again to to soak themselves in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. This isn't a new teaching. We saw it all the way back at the beginning of Acts with the things the early church were obsessed with and meeting together. Meeting together, especially around the breaking of bread and the apostles' teaching was an obsession of theirs. They saw the value. They had the priority. They knew that what they needed most in their life wasn't more free time, wasn't more box sets, wasn't more hours in labour so that they could build extra room so that they could have more stuff and leisure and comfort. One of their expectations, one of their priorities, one of their desires, the thing that they knew that they needed was to be in this environment of truth. And there's a sense in which I'm preaching to the choir this morning, isn't it? That if you're sat somewhere listening, then there's a sense in which you have prioritised that already. But I wonder whether we're conscious of that. I wonder if we're conscious about the way that we spend our time, about the things which we consciously or unconsciously prioritise in our life and give value to. For many of us, the value we give is to scrolling on our phones. That's where our time is. That's where our energy is. That's where our attention is. We get home from work and that's where we go. For others, it'll be clubs or experiences and going out for meals. None of these things are bad things. But do we have that desire, that expectation right off the bat that we would be a people who are in the habit of putting ourselves in this environment of truth, in this environment of Jesus and his gospel? They've been working hard all day. And when we'd probably say, do you know what, I just need to slob in the couch, get some ice cream and watch some TV. They come together to celebrate Jesus. They come together to be porked and prodded and provoked and encouraged to keep following him. That's the first expectation or desire that we see in the passage. The second thing is this, that they expected, Paul expected, and they seemed to be willing to go along with it, Not just to be in that environment with other believers, but to hear, to have the sound and the words and and, and the knowledge of the truth of Jesus fill the air in their minds. Paul was on this encouragement tour, not puffing people up, but making sure that their gazes are lifted from themselves, gazes are lifted from their circumstances, their eyes are fixed on Jesus. He's going from place to place and he's encouraging. He knows he's going to be leaving here soon. He has desires to travel to Jerusalem. But what he wants to do before he goes on 
is to share Jesus with them more and more and more. Is that our expectation? Is that our desire to, to speak Jesus to one another, to have others speak Jesus? His wonder, his glory, his majesty, his work, his wealth given for us, the impact and the effect that it has in our lives. Is that genuinely a desire that we have? Would we turn our noses up at a Paul amongst us, speaking from um, sundown through to midnight? Would we say, oh, what is this? chatter are going on about what is he prattling on about i don't need to hear this again and again and on and on i fancy that probably for most of us we make an idol out of the length of time something takes we are happy to give graciously five ten minutes of our attention but take any more and there are liberties no these are people who are willing to give it who are desperate to have their attention filled with Jesus. They expected the sound of the truth of the Jesus and the gospel to fill the air around them, to fill their minds. Very often we're not in control of the environment, are we? We're not in control of the things that we're, be, we're hearing, that we're being taught. We're in the workplace, we are assuming things, when we're out and about in town, when we're living our lives, when we turn on the TV, when we pick up our phones, when we open the paper, there are other people who are deciding the sorts of things that we should be hearing. How often do we take life by the, by the scruff of the neck and say, no, I want to hear Jesus. That was their expectation. That was their desire. Jesus is worth listening to. Jesus is worth hearing about. Whether you think you've heard it all before or not, as we sing so regularly, a time is coming when those who have put their trust in Jesus will have 10,000 years to sing 10,000 reasons and on and on and on about how glorious he is. We each have something to learn about him and what he has done. We each, every week, step into new circumstances and experiences that require us to, to reassess. How does Jesus speak to me in these circumstances? How is Jesus to be lived out in this present predicament? We constantly need to be filled more and more with the truth, the reality of who he is and what he has done. Their expectation, as with elsewhere in the scriptures we see, was to create that environment, was to be there and to, to make the most of that. To not just be satisfied to sit around and chit chat about weather and, and sports and films that we've seen, but to have Jesus lifted up and their gaze pointed towards him. They expected regularly to be in this environment of truth with one another. They expected to hear the truth of Jesus declared on and on. They also expected that their lives would be utterly transformed by it. Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, 
hoping to get some fresh air, perhaps, to keep him awake, you know? This this is at the end of a long, hard work day. And now, Paul explaining, perhaps going into detail, perhaps going from person to person in the room, encouraging, exhorting Christ into their various situations. He falls asleep, he falls out of the window, he plummets three stories, and he dies. That would normally be the end of the story, wouldn't it? That would certainly be the end of the meeting. If someone literally died in one of our gatherings, we wouldn't just carry on as if nothing had happened. But life with Jesus, life in this environment of Jesus and his good news and his truth, the experience of of having him around us and in us, curing it, being built up by it, means that we expect things to go differently. Perhaps we don't expect it to go this differently, but we should expect life to be utterly changed by the truth that we surround ourselves with. We've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks, haven't we? That if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is God taken on flesh, the rescuer, the Messiah, the Christ, come to to live in our place, to die in our place and rise again in our place, If he has done all that, if we can be forgiven, if we can be reconciled to God, if we can have this hope of salvation eternal, if he has truly given us his spirit to live in us, to work in us, to move in us, then we should be expecting that true stuff to transform our lives. Paul goes down, embraces this young man, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, raises him from the dead, turns to the folks and says, do not be alarmed. He is alive. I wonder how many of our expectations are day to day, or especially when we gather together, that something different would happen, that something miraculous would happen, That life wouldn't just be the same as it always is and that it is for those who don't know Jesus, on and on and on. But our lives would genuinely be transformed. It never ceases to amaze me when folks in our church family suffer. And in that suffering, they are drawn and brought closer to Jesus. We have expectations, don't we? We certainly hear these testimonies from people in our world that when they see sadness, when they see sickness, when they see suffering, their brains do the math and they say, well, God doesn't care. God isn't there. But for those of us who know Jesus, our expectations should be different, shouldn't they? For a transformed sort of living, a transformed sort of experience, that actually in the darkness we see his light and his love shining all the brighter. Our expectations should be different. We know how the world would tell us how to respond and act in certain situations. Someone cuts you up, pulls out in front of you at the roundabout, curse them. Flash your lights, beep your horn, let them know that they are the worst person in the world for that moment. Or be utterly transformed by the truth that is Jesus. Pray for them. Love those, Jesus said, who persecute you. Do not love your neighbour, hate your enemy. Love your enemy. Pray for them. Show kindness and grace to them. 
Our expectation should be that when the Spirit is with us, in us, when Jesus has done what he has done and sent who he has sent, that life wouldn't be the same. I think that's one of the reasons why they don't make more of this. Because they have this sort of expectation that life that they had known before isn't life that they live now. Is that ours? Is that our expectation? Is that our, as our desire? Or as we've been contemplating in the last couple of weeks, are we just comfortable to plod on with Jesus? To not have any feathers ruffled? Sometimes we can set our expectations low because we don't want to be disappointed. I love one of the things that I've been learning as I've been making my way through the prayers of Paul in his letters to the churches is that one of his prayers is that we would know God's will, that we would know God's, God's plans and God's purposes so that we could pray in line with them. Oh, how much I desire to be the sort of person who prays for the things that God is already at work doing and preparing as Jesus taught his followers asking that his will be done his kingdom come on earth now as it is in heaven we should be expecting that desiring that okay here's the last thing that they expect to do they desire to do they expected to be in that environment habitually together of truth to have this congregation of Jesusness. They expected to hear about Jesus, to have the air filled with him and the good news about him. They expected that truth to utterly change their lives and their experience of life. But then lastly, they expected somehow to celebrate that truth as well. After going upstairs, they did. They did the thing that they decided they were coming to do in the first place. They broke bread and they ate it. It's communion, isn't it? It's Eucharist. It's the Lord's Supper. Proclaiming his death. Acting it out. Remembering it. Celebrating what he has done. Not just being informed, not just being taught, but expressing that. I wonder how many of us actually seek those sorts of experiences in our lives. Not that there's any magic power in the bread or the wine that we take or some of the other sacraments that we administer, but that we seek out opportunities to say, yes, this is true. Yes, this is good. Yes, this is what I need. So I think we do a great job of that in our present modern context with, with our singing, that we are a passionate people who want to lift up our voices, to lift up the good news about Jesus. For many, communion is a good way that we do that, that when we gather together reasonably often, we want to have these things, these symbols, these reminders these, these literal pieces which we take into ourselves just as we take in what Christ has done. But do we craft those? Do we desire them day by day in different ways and in different places? Do we want to have opportunities, not just to hear about Jesus, but to respond to Jesus? To, to change what we do with our bodies and our hearts and our lips and our minds? They did even after this remarkable 
miracle. Perhaps more so after this remarkable miracle. They want to carry on and do something which many of us think is utterly ordinary and utterly boring. To break bread. To eat it. To remember what Jesus has done. To declare his death until he comes again to make all things new. The final note, I think, is important for us as well. Paul continued speaking until dawn. It really is a long time now. Then he left. They brought the boy home alive and they were greatly comforted. Guess what that word is? The comforted word. It's paracleo again. It's the encouragement. It's the having something shifted in them, pointed in them, changed in their direction. No doubt they're, they're comforted, they're encouraged in the sense of this boy that they thought that they had lost now was alive again. But I imagine that what's being spoken about here is as well this emboldening. This in, emboldening in themselves that, that Jesus and living for him and following him and suffering for him and being transformed by him, that it's worth it. Many of us have just got expectations that are too low. Many of us have got a Christ who is too small. Many of us, as like I've already confessed, don't want to dream big, desire big, expect big, because we don't want to be disappointed by God. But let me promise you this this morning. Christ is big enough. Christ is strong enough. Christ is caring enough and loving enough to carry the weight of all of our expectations. That doesn't mean that we'll expect something and it will happen. Lord, I've asked you for this, therefore you have to fulfill. But what are we worried about? Why do we not expect, as these early believers did, desire to have the truth around them, in them, amongst them, transforming them? Christ, let me promise you, is big enough to carry the entire weight of our expectations. I'm reminded of this passage, this verse from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's spoken to me now for the last three or four years about what we expect from God and what he is able to deliver. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. He's praying that they would have this love and this knowledge and this experience of God's power. The spirit in them, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that rose Tabitha from the dead, the same spirit who was here raised Eutychus from the dead, to be at work in their lives. And this is what he says. This is what he prays. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now to him who is able to do more than we could ever dream or imagine or think up or desire or expect. Do you see how God, Jesus, is bigger than our measly, poxy little expectations. He is able, according to the power that works in us, Christ's goodness, Christ's life, 
Christ's death applied to us by his transforming spirit. That in the mix of that, we would be transformed. His name would be lifted up. That he would be glorified in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever. Your expectations are most certainly too small. Your view of God is too small. That's why perhaps we would go to a passage like Acts chapter 20 and we turn our nose up at the mundane things that they do. But they expected, they desired, because they knew that Jesus was big enough for it all. So let's pray together. Really quickly, let's pray that God would be opening our eyes to his immensity. That we would have hearts, soft hearts, that want to have more of his truth, that want to have more of Jesus's powerful gospel in our lives, that we'd have the courage to make meeting together a priority, that we'd have the good sense to have hearing about Jesus a priority in our lives, that we would have these just expectations that life wouldn't carry on just as normal, humdrum, convey about day after day, the same as everyone else around us. That we would want to celebrate the truth of what Jesus has done. Let's pray asking him that our expectations would be bigger. Lord God, we confess that so often we make too little of you. Lord, there are scraps in our lives which we sort of concede that we should give you as a sort of thank you for the great salvation that is promised to us in Jesus. But Lord God, we know that it is too little, that it is too small. We have too small a view of your salvation. Lord, we want to know what it is to be changed by Jesus. We want to know what it is to, to bear his glory in our lives day to day. Lord, we want to know how Jesus makes a difference, not just in the, the songs that we sing or something like that, but in the lives that we lead, in the words that we use, in the love that we have. Lord, I want us to be expecting more from you. Because wherever we have come, wherever we have arrived, you are bigger. Your plans and your purposes and your power, they go far beyond. So I pray that you would give us the courage to expect more, to desire more, to prioritise you more in our lives because there is so much more of you to have. Work in us, challenge us, change us, I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.